Father, that is our prayer this morning. Not our will, but yours be done. What that really means, Lord, at the center of that statement is a heart that is surrendered to the authority and the sovereignty and the power of God. Regardless of the situations we face, regardless of the places we are, regardless of the, of the way we feel, the injustices that we experience, the pain that we carry, regardless of all of those things, we rest in the confidence that you're in control. And so we can worship. We can worship in a way that draws attention to a God who is overall. A God who is in control. So we can say, not our will but yours be done because we understand that your will is always perfect. Your will and desire is always good. But we are so out of step. We want our way. We want things to work out for us and make us happy and make us comfortable. But Lord, may the deepest longing of our heart be a longing that draws attention to the God of the universe, the God who is over all, the God who is at the center of history and who made all of these things possible for us through Jesus. We celebrate this Christmas holiday, this Advent season, the work of Christ in coming to earth and making a way, overcoming all of the problems that we introduced, overcoming our sin, overcoming death, overcoming rebellious hearts, overcoming lack of faith, making a way through Christ. Lord, this morning, may Christ be central for us. This morning, may our lives align to the will of the Father and may our hearts and lives express devotion to you, not only in this hour, but as we leave this place. May this season be punctuated by worship and delight of God as we surrender ourselves to you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We've been stepping through the Old Testament covenants in preparation for Christmas. We, uh, we, we've come to understand that, that the gospel, which is the good news, is present for us and, and, and is, God is stepping us in closer and closer to understand what we need and what he plans to accomplish through his son, Jesus, the Messiah. The, the God who came near, the God who became flesh and dwelt among us. And so we come to understand the gospel as we have been working through the Old Testament in anticipation of all that Christ would do for us that we could not do for ourselves. And so written across the landscape of the Old Testament, written across the Old and New Testament for us is this banner of God's Nature and character that we've seen through the page of Scripture. Last week, we, we looked at the, the promise that God gave to David. Promise of having a future son and a, and a kingdom that was sure and fixed. And it seemed as though when David came, this golden era had finally dawned. That God was finally going to fulfill all the promises that he had given 
to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, finally were going to be fulfilled in David, and finally fulfilled in David's son. And certainly when Solomon takes the throne, the, the outward appearance of God's faithfulness to his people was so prominent. There's peace, there's prosperity. The, the nations are, are recognizing the, the work of God in blessing this nation, Israel. The presence of God is there in Jerusalem, the, the center of worship and center of political authority. But then we find there's compromise. All of the things that, that were good, all of those things that seemed to be the evidence of God's handiwork came to a crashing close. Moral decline, blatant disobedience of King Solomon, following after other gods, this wayward heart that was present in Solomon and became the pattern for a people of Israel. And so the kingdom was divided. It was divided into to two different groups, the, the northern ten tribes who were ruled initially by Jeroboam and every single ruler of the northern ten tribes, it says, were wicked and evil consistently. Rehoboam, as Solomon's son, took the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin and there was a, there was a spattering of good and bad intermingled in, uh, in and among these kings. But ultimately, 300 years after David's reign, the northern 10 tribes are ultimately destroyed by Assyria. And 120 years after that, Judah will be taken by Babylon. These descendants of Abraham, removed from the land again, no trace of a nation, kingdom or king or authority, conquered by foreign powers, spread among the nations, not enjoying God's blessing, and it raises a number of questions. Would God be faithful to his people? How did this happen? Is he going to be able to keep his promises? Is he going to be a God who is going to carry them through? Or is it going to be dependent upon the unfaithfulness of his people and they're going to abandon God and thus obliterate the promise? Is God really in control? Is he really good? Is he really dependent? Is he really wise? And Standing towards the end of this Old Testament age and the dawning of a New Testament age where Christ will come, the question remains, what will happen to God's promises and what will happen to God's people? And so God shows up to Jeremiah and God shows up to Ezekiel in the darkest moments of Israel's history and writes his banner across the, the pages of his word and declares, I am faithful my nature and my character will carry the people and the promise that I've made. It is not dependent upon the unfaithfulness and disobedience of the people, but on the power and faithfulness of God to carry through his promises. As we step into this new covenant, we're going to see a number of things that relate to the character of God. God is God is creating for us a, a, a taste and a, and a picture of his character, helping us to see who he really is and how his promises will be accomplished as, they, as they're standing on the foundation of the person and nature of God. First, we're going to see this morning that you can trust in the sovereignty of God. 
you can trust in the sovereignty of God. Because his plans are not dependent on circumstances. Why can you trust the sovereignty of God? Well, because it's not up to you. You can't ruin his plans. You can't foil his plans. You can't interfere with his plans. They're not based upon circumstances. He knows the end from the beginning, as we heard in our reading this morning. His plans are going to stand because they're independent of the circumstances that you face. We're going to see that this morning as we work through the new covenant. And when I speak about the sovereignty of God, let me just give you a brief definition. The sovereignty, or God's sovereignty is his right in power to do all that he decides to do. His right in his power to do all that he decides to do. Meaning, God is the one who sets the plan in motion, and God is the one who works the plan out. It's not dependent on us. It's dependent on his sovereignty, his authority, his power, his control. He is everything in this master plan. We see the sovereignty of God, and we'll see it come to life for us this morning as we see his sovereignty in his new covenant that he makes with his people. 273 times throughout the prophets, they give attention to the the sovereignty of God by addressing him as the sovereign Lord. Isaiah will use this title of God 18 times. Jeremiah will use this title nine times. Ezekiel will use the title Sovereign Lord 217 times out of the 273. This is a favorite expression of Ezekiel. Ezekiel's heart is anchored, is steady, is founded on the foundation of the sovereignty of God. And it's astonishing considering Ezekiel's situation. Ezekiel was no longer in Jerusalem. Ezekiel was a captive now in Babylon, 900 miles away from home. The northern ten tribes had already been erased essentially from the the position in the northern part of Israel. They had been captive by Assyria, spread along uh, about the known world. Judah had been conquered by Egypt, and now already two times, Nebuchadnezzar had come against Jerusalem and had brought captives from Jerusalem back to Babylon. And Jerusalem, by the way, was the only city that remained in Judah. The temple had been polluted by the people of God. In only a few short years, the temple would be absolutely destroyed, and the city of Jerusalem would be crushed. The people of God have been humiliated and the God of Israel seems to be, have, have been totally forgotten. And this is the moment where Ezekiel anchors his heart in the sovereignty of God. Because the nature of God and the character of God remains regardless of the circumstances. From a situational standpoint, nothing could be worse for Israel. Yet in this moment, Ezekiel stakes his claim on the sovereignty and power and authority of God. That God is supreme over nations, over peoples, over rulers, and even over the rebellion of his people. God's plans are not dependent on the circumstances. And that is because his promises are reinforced by his own power. 
His promises are reinforced by his own power, which means the way in which the promises of God will come about happen because of the power of God and the power of God alone. God doesn't depend on anyone else to keep their end of the bargain. He's not dependent on the faithlessness of the people. He's not dependent on obedient or disobedient kings and leaders. His promises stand because God knows the end from the beginning. He saw the rebellion before it happened. He determined in his heart what would happen and he carries it through. You have in your notes a sampling of the the covenant that God makes with Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Found in chapters 29, Jeremiah 29 through Jeremiah 33. And then Ezekiel going back to chapter 30 and carrying forward to Ezekiel 36. This new covenant or covenant of peace that's referred to in these two books of the Bible. It's significant that God would make identical promises. One to Jeremiah who was positioned in Jerusalem under siege a city that was being decimated because of God's discipline on them and the, the pain and distress upon the people of God in that place. God was going to be faithful to them even though they were being disciplined by God there in Jerusalem. And God was going to also be faithful to those who had already been removed. God had not forgotten them. God had not abandoned them. The promises of God would stand for his people wherever they were. And that's the point. Regardless of their situation, God was going to save his people based upon his promise, not based upon their performance. So let me just read this for you. I hope and trust that you have the passage in the notes in front of you. If you don't, I would encourage you to grab a copy of that. I just want to read through this. And the sovereignty of God will come to the forefront without a whole lot of work. The translation that we have before us, whether it's the ESV or the New King James or the NIV, will often provide the, 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 the connective word, the and or the but, and it won't continue to repeat the I will statements, but they're there. Uh, they're built into the verbs that are in the text, the Hebrew text, and every verb that you find in the text will continue to consistently share with us the I will statements of what God will accomplish. It's built in to the Hebrew verb. Let me read for us. It says this, beginning in Jeremiah 29. I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise. I will bring you back to this place. I will be found by you. I will restore your fortunes. I will gather you from all the nations. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers. I will break the yoke from your neck. I will burst your bonds. They shall serve the Lord their God and David their king. I will save you from far away. I will make a full end of all the nations. I'll restore health to you. I will heal your wounds. I will resolve or restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob. I will have compassion on his dwellings. I will multiply them, and they shall not be few. 
I will make them honored, and they shall not be small. I will punish all who oppress them. I will bring him near, and he will come close to me. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will be the God of all the clans of Israel. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have continued my faithfulness to you. I will build you, and you shall be built. I will bring them from the north country. I will gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. I will make them uh, walk by brooks of water. I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. He who scattered Israel will gather him. He who keep, uh, he will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. The Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem them. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will satisfy their weary soul. I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Just as I have watched over them to uproot and tear them down, so I will watch over them to build and to plant. I will make a new covenant with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant they broke. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them. I will write on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. I will remember their sins no more. Thus says the Lord who gives sun for light by day and fixed order of the moon and stars by night. If this fixed order departs, then the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, and the nations will know that I am the Lord. I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from the countries. I will bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will put within you a new spirit. I will remove the heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And they will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. What more needs to be said? What more needs to be said about the sovereignty of God who is in control? That the promises that God has made to his people depend on him and him alone. It's going to be carried by his power. And so that when we read, we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We can look at the testimony of God through history and we can say, God is faithful. God will do it. It's not dependent upon your or my fickle heart, rebel heart, disobedient heart. It is dependent upon God himself and God alone. He is sovereign. He will do it. So what does a life that is committed to the sovereignty of God look like? What does a life that believes and trusts in the sovereignty of God look like? The life of a person who believes that God is in control, 
The life of a person who is so settled and is so trusting and so convinced that God is not only in control, but that God is good. What does that heart look like regardless of the challenges and difficulties that you experience? You would expect a heart like that to be settled. You would expect a heart like that to be like Ezekiel in looking and pointing to the master plan of God in believing that whatever is happening to me, however difficult it might be, however, however challenging my experiences and, and however many uh, uh, the comforts have been taken away from me, if my heart is fixed in trusting in the sovereignty of God, I will believe that God has a plan, that plan is good, and that God is exalting his glory, his nature, himself through the situation that I'm experiencing. I will be able to do what James says in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. When he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Somehow, when life is hard, somehow when you're a captive in Babylon, and somehow when you are experiencing the discipline of God in a very difficult place in Jerusalem, like Jeremiah was, somehow you can say, God, however hard this is, I trust you in your good. You are accomplishing your purposes through this. And so I can, I can rejoice because you're in control. Every trial in your life has a purpose. Isn't that great to know? Nothing is wasted because of the sovereignty of God. No challenge, no frustration, no difficulty, no hardship that God introduces into your life is wasted. It's all by design to lead you into greater faith in him. To amplify your delight in him because here's what happens. The more God shows you his sovereignty, the more you begin to realize how beautiful and majestic and glorious he is. It strengthens your relationship with God through the testing because it tethers your heart to have to believe in him because nothing else has been dependable for you. No other joy is able to carry you, only the joy of God. And so God, in the moments of hardship, because of his sovereignty, carries you. You can trust in the sovereignty of God. That's what the new covenant says. But you can also rely on the holiness of God. You can rely on the holiness of God. Ezekiel 36, verses 22 and 23. I have a, there's a number of passages here in Ezekiel, and I want to just skip to this one because it kind of captures the essence for us. This is what God says. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you, I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. What a great truth that God is holy. And because God is holy, 
There is nothing that God permits to come into your life that isn't for your good and isn't because of his purity and perfection. God is the impartial God. God doesn't differentiate between classes of people. God doesn't look on your background and say, oh, you came from that family, so you have favored status. God, as a holy God, because of his son, Jesus Christ, makes a way, and because of his impartial standard, his holy standard, he makes a way only through faith in Christ. The ground is level before the cross. There are no individuals who have favored status We all come to a God because of his holiness, and we all come on level ground in desperate need. God is just. He will deal with us in injustice. He will deal with us in a way that is right and pure. But here's the problem. None of us in this room are deserving because none of us in this room are perfect. So the righteous, holy God, for him to remain holy, must also vindicate his holy name among us. How is he going to do that? There is only one way. The only way for God to vindicate his holy name among an unholy people is to present a holy son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life and who died and paid the price for sin so that we could be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. His righteousness can be placed on those who believe and then God will vindicate his name by pouring out his judgment on sin on his son as he deserves. And so, as we find in 1 John 1, 9, He is faithful and just to forgive, not by overlooking sin, but by taking care of sin on Jesus. If we confess our sin, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of his holy name. And so what does God do for us? He he built into this covenant a way. He built into this covenant a way by making a people holy to himself. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will, and a new spirit, I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God is making a people to himself by his power and by his spirit, overcoming the sin nature that we bring because of Adam, overcoming that sin and death and the the, uh, not just the rebellion of our own hearts, but the captivity that we have, the slavery to that sin, he becomes a new master for us. We don't have to be slaves anymore to sin, but we are slaves to Christ. We're slaves to righteousness because he has made us righteous in Christ and given us not only the capacity for honoring and obeying him, but giving us the spirit and giving us his word, writing that on our hearts so that we can actually do what he has called us to do. God is making a people holy for himself. 
So those who are new covenant people, those who are participating in this new covenant promise are going to be growing in holiness. They're going to be growing in transformation. They're, they're going to be like what Paul says in Revela- or, excuse me, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Those who are not conformed to this world, but those who are transformed by the renewing of their mind. Why does that happen? It happens because of a holy God who is vindicating his holy name by creating a holy people through his, the power of his son and the power of his spirit. And he gets the glory when he does this. You can trust the sovereignty of God. And you can rely on the holiness of God. But you can also depend on the mercy of God. You can depend on the mercy of God. A God who extends these promises in the midst of massive judgment and punishment. This is the moment... This is the moment in Israel's history, the darkest moment they've ever experienced as a people. A moment they're experiencing judgment and discipline because of their heart that was set on rebellion against God. So God has, is, is inviting them to enjoy all of the, maybe enjoy is the wrong word, they're experiencing all of the challenges and punishment and judgment because of their sin. They brought it on themselves, and yet, in the midst of this, God extends promise and mercy. God is faithful, faithful to extend his grace and kindness to them. We see that in Jeremiah chapter 33, verses seven and nine, where God promises to do this forgiving work for them. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all their guilt and of their sin against me. I will forgive all their guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity that I provide for it. The mercy of God is on display over your life as God forgives you of sin and leads you to himself and establishes you as a person who is walking after him. And so your life becomes a showcase of the the splendor of God in setting his affection on somebody who didn't deserve it. But how are they going to know? How are the nations going to know if we put on a face, if we don't talk about our brokenness, if, if we conceal the rebellion inside and we don't allow people to understand the, the mercy of God in forgiving a wretched heart like ours, it's only when the world sees how great a forgiveness he's given to us that his mercy is now becomes a, a portrait of glory to God. It is through the forgiveness that God has given to us. And also, it is, it is demonstrated probably the, the, the clearest in our expression of mercy to others. That the mercy that God has extended to us now becomes reciprocated. It becomes a mercy then we extend to others. As we find in Matthew chapter 5, 7, where, where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount will say, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Why? 
not because it's a tit for tat, not because it's a benefit because of a work that we have done, but it is a demonstration of a present work that's already happened, meaning you have been a recipient of mercy and those who receive mercy will give mercy because they begin to understand how how much they deserve the judgment of God and not the grace of God. And so they're free to express to others what they have experienced from God, recognizing that the, that the mercy that they're extending is, is puny, is minuscule compared to the mercy they've received. We find this in the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verses 12 to 15. Where it says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What is it about us? We think that if we hang on to bitterness, we think if we, if we, prevent ourselves from offering forgiveness and extending kindness, somehow we feel like we're punishing the person who has wronged us. There's an interesting statement. Maybe you've heard it. Bitterness is the poison I drink in the hope of killing someone else. Bitterness is the poison I drink in the hope of killing someone else. But we're called to remove bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor and evil speaking. And we do that not because we're not because we're spiritually mature, but we do that because we recognize how little of the mercy and grace of God we deserve. And that's why it goes on in Ephesians 4:32. It says it says and and be kind to one another, forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. That's the precedent. The forgiveness that God has covered over your life and drawn you to himself is a forgiveness that you express, a forgiveness that you show. It's a, it's a bitterness that you let go of and a kindness that you shower on undeserving people for the sake of showcasing the mercy of God to a world that so desperately needs it. So you can trust in the sovereignty of God. You can rely on the holiness of God. You can depend on the mercy of God and you can also believe in the faithfulness of God. You can believe in the faithfulness of God. And written throughout this new covenant, we don't have time this morning to cover it, are the te- is the testimony of God's work in not just, not obliterating the promises that he made to Adam and to Noah and to Moses and Abraham and David, but but building on those promises, strengthening those promises and, and shining a light on how those promises will be fulfilled in this future deliverer, this future Messiah. God will be faithful to his promises. God will perform the work that he has committed himself to perform because it's built in to his nature. It's part of his character. Throughout this new covenant, you're gonna see, I will be faithful to my everlasting promise because that is the character of God, the character of faithfulness. And finally, you must rest in the salvation of God. If you're going to be a new covenant participant, 
If you're going to enjoy the benefits and the blessings uh, of this promise, which were not just made to Israel, Israel and Judah, but now extended to us through Christ, if we're going to be a participant in the new covenant blessings, you must rest in the salvation of God. Jesus does make everything new. And we find Jesus in this statement that he makes to his disciples on the night before his crucifixion. He's enjoying this ordinance of communion, breaking bread and this Passover meal. And he takes the, 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 the foreshadowing, this picture of the Passover, and then he applies it to himself. When he says in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 and 27, now, as they were eating, speaking of the disciples, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus came to establish this new covenant promise and to make it available through his body, through his blood, so that we can participate and enjoy the new covenant blessings that come through faith in Christ, just like Abraham. Abraham believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness because he was trusting in this future son who would handle and carry this promise through to the finish line. This morning, do you believe? Are you enjoying the benefits of this new covenant promise? Have you come to a place of realizing you have nothing to contribute, that your own heart is out of, out of sync and out of alignment with the, the standard that God has, 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 has applied to us and that only through Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, can we enjoy the, the benefits of what he offers to us through his Son? And when we do, we can see and experience the sovereignty of God. We can understand and appreciate the holiness of God. You can come to a place of marveling and worshiping because of the mercy of God. You see his faithfulness. And your life is a portrait of his work of salvation and deliverance for you. And your life now becomes a mission. A mission of commending this, these same new covenant blessings to the world who desperately needs to be brought in and to enjoy this relationship that you have. Oh God, I pray that you would help us. I pray that, that we who are recipients of this new covenant blessing, we would not take it for granted. We would not let it sit dormant in our lives but it would be active. It would cause a sense of purpose and mission and urgency. God, those neighbors, those friends, those fellow classmates that we are, that we are surrounded with, Lord, may we see eternity written on their hearts, that they are either going to spend eternity with a holy God or they're going to spend an eternity experiencing judgment from a holy God on sin. God, may we come to appreciate and understand the magnitude of what we enjoy and may it propel us into the mission that you have called us to, to make disciples of all nations. Give us courage, Lord. 
Give us a sense of the love that you have for us and may it compel us for love to you and love to the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming, God bless you.